um, it's really neat to listen to him on tape and then you meet him and, and it's just uh, I fell in love with this man when I heard his tape and through uh, some events I've come to meet him a couple times and uh, there was one in particular thing that stood out and I, I identified with him right away being an alcoholic one and carrying marbles for another and uh, <laughs> uh, he <laughs> we've lost our marbles <laughs> and uh, with that I want to give you uh, Tom thank you My name is Tom Jr. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> After I haven't had a drink since July 20th, 1965. I almost forgot that. <laughs> Roma rocket took me one way and the AA rocket took me the other. After hearing Jim W. talk last night, I know that he really doesn't know. But he doesn't know that I know that he really doesn't know. <laughs> but I know. <laughs> uh, I'm an alcoholic and I'm sober. That's a grand and a glorious and a wonderful thing. If nothing else ever happens in my life but that, that's a grand and a glorious and a beautiful and a wondrous thing. And it's an example of God's grace, which I consider to be God's reaction to actions that I have taken. And we've heard about those actions spoken of again and again. And I love these guys and gals that have talked here. I have learned something from every one of them. And I'm one of those who believes that I am here to learn. And once I learn, I'm supposed to share what I learned with someone else, or it amounts to nothing. I want to underline the 12 traditions for just a minute, if I can be serious for just a minute. I can do that once in a while. The Twelve Traditions preserve the integrity of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the integrity of Alcoholics Anonymous is important to everyone here and everyone who's going to come here. And in the time in which we live, the integrity of Alcoholics Anonymous is being threatened like it never has been before. AA is under pressure from all kinds of outside agencies and professionals to change itself to fit their needs. And they're sending people here who we love, but they don't belong here. And they're sending them with their heads full of erroneous ideas. A drug is a drug. An addict is an addict. Alcoholics Anonymous is just another form of group therapy, or it's aftercare for your program. And that's dangerous. A drug may be a drug, but there's a big difference between crack and alcohol. An addict may be an addict, but there's a huge difference between a cocaine addict and an alcoholic. Alcoholics Anonymous is not now and never has been just another form of group therapy, and it serves as aftercare for no one. It is what it always says it has been, a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other, that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. Clearly, Alcoholics Anonymous is for alcoholics. And let me make myself clear. If you're an alcoholic... <laughs> If you're an alcoholic, you have ten other addictions. You can be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous as an alcoholic. But if you have ten addictions and you're not an alcoholic, you can't be a member of this fellowship. And I believe that with all of my heart, and I think we need to protect and preserve that integrity, no matter how unpopular that may be.
Now, uh, some people may not agree with that, and that's okay. I would refer them to the literature of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Heard a story the other night tickled me real good. I got to get loosened up here, Keith. This thing tickled me real good. This guy, 65-year-old, married a 20-year-old woman. And in two months, he was running around on her with a 65-year-old woman. And his 20-year-old wife confronted him and says, what in the world does that 65-year-old woman have that I don't have? And he said, patience. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm not a spiritual giant, but I went through a stage in recovery where I thought I was. We call it the terrible twos down in North Carolina. And I heard a story about this guy going through the terrible twos, and all he could talk about was God, 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 24 hours a day, driving his wife crazy, talking about God this and God that. And one morning he woke up, he said, you know, God's with me all the time. When I went to the bathroom last night, he cut the light on for me. And said, when I left, he cut it off. She said, you old fool, you've pissed in the refrigerator again. Any Alanons here? Let me see your hands. Now, I happen to be one of those people who reveres and respects Alanon. I really do. They've been a great help to me, and those who I revere and respect, I tend to pick at a little bit. And I heard a story about an alcoholic and his Alanon wife and two kids. They were driving through the country and ran out of gas. They walked to this farmhouse and asked the farmer, could they spend the night? And he said, of course, but somebody would have to sleep in the barn. And the children said, well, let us sleep in the barn. And they'd go out to the barn, and 15 minutes later, they'd come back. They said, we can't sleep out there. The animals are disturbing us. And the Alanine said, the alcoholic says, well, I'll go out there and sleep. And he goes out to the barn. 15 minutes later, he comes in. He said, I can't sleep either. Those animals are very noisy out there. And the Alanine says, well, I'll go. And she goes out to the barn, and 15 minutes later, the animals came in the house. <laughs> when I say I'm an alcoholic, I mean I'm the kind of a person who always believes that anything that feels good should be done to excess. If it feels good, overdo it. So I've had problems with gambling, I've had problems with eating, I've had problems with working, problems with not working. I've had problems with sex. Any of y'all had sex problems? I remember when I found out sex felt good. I was by myself just like all of y'all were. And in spite of dire warnings from my mother... <laughs> About a certain part of my anatomy was going to rot off, and I was going to go blind. I figured I'd keep on till I was nearsighted. It's one of my greatest successes in life. And I found out it felt good with somebody, <laughs> and all hell broke loose. Now, say I'm an alcoholic, I mean I'm the kind of person that likes to do everything at one time and do it all perfectly. Everything. 
when I get home from here, my phone will be lit up with messages, and there'll be mail, and I'll start going through the letters, answering them, answering them, talking on the telephone at the same time, get awfully frustrated trying to do everything at once. Uh, you ever tried to pee and comb your hair at the same time? <laughs> now, women may be able to do that. I, I don't know, but when you're six foot three and you're trying to do that, you are not going to hit the bowl very often, I'll tell you. When I say I'm an alcoholic, I mean I'm the kind of person who's always been a great starter and a poor finisher. I have two basic speeds, fast forward and stop. <laughs> Sounds funny, doesn't it? You know, when I was in pain or suffering or the law was behind me, I wanted help worse than anything in the world, and I'd put it fast forward. When things would get better, I'd put it on stop and do the same thing that got them behind me in the first place. It doesn't sound like a big problem, great on, the, great on hitting the ball and lousy on the follow-through. But this is, as I understand it, a program of follow-through. The 12th step doesn't say we hit the ball and forgot about it. It says we practice and practice and practice and practice, and there's a thing about practice. If you practice long enough, it becomes habitual. If it becomes habitual, it becomes a part of your character. It is second nature to you to practice certain principles, and that's what this program is all about. Follow through, follow through, follow through. Do it, do it, do it. When I say I'm an alcoholic, I mean I'm the kind of a person who lives in a body that never would handle alcohol. When I put alcohol into my body, it sent me a clear and certain and urgent message. Get some more of that shit and get it right now. <laughs> And it happened every single time. And, you know, you can argue with your mind. You know, your mind tells you to do something. You say, oh, I'll put it on. Wait, wait, let me think about it. You can argue with your body. You ever try to argue with a case of diarrhea? <laughs> what your body wants, your body gets. Your body's unreasonable. It says get some more. You're going to get some more. And I did. When I say I'm an alcoholic, I mean I'm the kind of a person who, where alcohol was concerned, was insane. And I like the way the big book puts it. It doesn't say I'm manic depressive, although I might be. It doesn't say I'm clinically depressed, although I might be. It doesn't say I'm schizophrenic, although it might, I might be. It doesn't say I'm mentally ill in the standard sense of that word in any way. It says some nice things. Silkworth said some nice things. They may be able, intelligent, friendly people. I like that shit. <laughs> but when it comes to alcohol, they are strangely insane. And I submit to you, strange insanity cannot be touched by medications. You give a person who's strangely insane medications, he gets strangely insaner about the medications. <laughs> it can't be done through traditional psychotherapy. Because it's not a problem simply of the mental processes or the chemicals in the brain. It is because I am disconnected from something I must not be disconnected from. The power that created me. So that I'm behaving in a way which is suicidal, self-destructive, and convincing myself it's okay. I walked around for years with two minds. One mind was kind of sane. You know, I'd be walking down the street and my monkey mind over here would say, a cool beer would taste nice on a hot day. I never drink beer because it's cool. <laughs> and the other side of my mind would say, please don't do that. You know what happened before. And I'd turn right into that bar room. You know? The big book puts it this way. Parallel with our sound reasoning ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. In the book of James in, in the Bible, which is non-conference approved literature, <laughs> but from which a lot of our stuff came, James put it another way. He said, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. 
He's like a blade of grass blown in the wind, first this way and then that way. And if that doesn't describe me, I don't know what does. Good old wishy-washy Tom. And this is the only program, and this is the finest program on the face of the earth that tells me I'm spiritually sick. I had a hard time with that until I started reading the book. Said I had a spiritual malady. And once the spiritual malady was overcome, I'd straighten out mentally and physically. I would no longer be strangely insane. And I had to figure that out for me. I don't know how you figured it for you. I've always been an idealist and a perfectionist. A hypersensitive romantic dreamer who was never satisfied with life, self, or others. I always wanted more. And in order to get that more, I had to manipulate and use and con and lie and scheme. And when you do that to people, they rebel. That's what the book says. And a wall came up between me and my brothers and my sisters. And without knowing it, I became cut off from them. And by being cut off from them, I was cut off from the higher power. You know, I love the simplicity of this program. How do you deal with the spiritual malady? You quit playing God. You're an actor in this drama of life. You're not the director in this drama of life. Grow down, it says, and become God's kid. Quit playing God. Remove the wall between you and your brothers and sisters. Reconnect. Because disconnection is the essence of spiritual illness. Reconnect with your brothers and sisters and therefore with your God. And your mind will come together as one and you won't pick up the first drink. God, isn't that simple? And that's what the steps are about. Too simple, isn't it? This is not a program for intellectuals. I'm glad Jim doesn't understand it. <laughs> it took me a long time to find out I couldn't understand it. Intellectuals pick up the book Alcoholics Anonymous and start reading through it. They say it's the sorriest piece of literature I've ever read in my life. The commas are in the wrong places, you know. They're dangling participles, you know. It, it, it's, it's all this, it's awful written book, you know. Bill Wilson was not a good writer. And you say, yeah, I guess so. Bible ain't too well written either. You know? Tell an intellectual, I've been sober over 29 years. God, you must be strong. <laughs> say, no, sir, as a matter of fact, I'm pretty weak. He said, that makes no sense. I said, no, it doesn't. You must have fought awfully hard to win the victory over alcohol. No, sir, I surrendered. Well, that makes no sense. Hell, I know it doesn't. Well, what do you do? I, well, I go to meetings. Ah, uh-huh, group therapy. No, sir, just a bunch of drunks get together and talk and lie a lot to each other, really. <laughs> and, 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 and he says, that makes no sense. I say, I know it doesn't. Well, what else do you do? Well, I have a sponsor, a psychotherapist. No, sir, he's a plumber. And he says, that makes no sense. And I said, I know it doesn't. Well, what else do you do? Well, we have these 12... Aha, the great theologians, philosophers got together and put you together a program of recovery. No, sir, it was written by a bunch of drunks. And he says, that makes no sense. And I said, I know it didn't. And he says, well, how does it work? I said, real good. (laughs) People think it's strange, you know. That the message for drunks came through drunks. That's poetry. That's poetry from the father of all poets. 
Look at our co-founders for crying out loud. You know, God's always chosen strange people to do his work. I read that non-conference proof literature sometime. You ever read about Ezekiel? Ezekiel was in DTs, man. Walking around in a valley of dry bones, seeing wheels inside of wheels way up in the middle of the air. Come on. And God chose him. How about Elijah? Man, never combed his hair, never shaved, ran naked in the desert eating grasshoppers. <laughs> it tickles me. God chose him. Bible says Moses was slow of speech. That <laughs> meant Moses stuttered. <laughs> Can you imagine God talking to Moses? Wants you to go to Egypt and get my kids, and Moses says, "I can't go." He says, "I'll send your brother Aaron to do the talking. You go in Egypt." I'm not a carpenter. That's a weird messenger, isn't it? Can anything good come out of that place? That's what you said, you know. And when God wants you to go, you're going. You remember Jonah? God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, I ain't going to Nineveh. Got in the boat and went the other way, man. 225 Mercruiser on the back of it. Came a big storm. They threw Jonah overboard. Big whale swallowed him up. You remember where he spit him out? Nineveh. <laughs> what that means to me, if God wants you to go to Nineveh, your ass is going to Nineveh. <laughs> Isn't it beautiful? God's strange, strange people eat you. How about the founders of this program? A stockbroker who was a failure in every area of his life. He couldn't have failed anymore. <laughs> and a proctologist. <laughs> oh, God, that's so appropriate. <laughs> proctologist deals with assholes, and so does AA. <laughs> What's so strange? <laughs> I think it's beautiful, man. <laughs> and so the American Medical Association reviews the book Alcoholics Anonymous in 1939 from an intellectual standpoint, Keith, and found absolutely nothing of redeeming value in the book. The spiritual program. It's not understood and then done. <laughs> it's done. And then sometimes it might be understood. But sometimes you just do it, don't you? Why? Because it's what you do. It's what you do after a while. Now, I've always been angry as far back as I can remember. I didn't know what I was mad at. And I was scared to death, not just snakes and spiders, Bob. I didn't know what I was scared of. And I was always guilty and hadn't done anything wrong. And I was ashamed and didn't know why. And that was my state of being at a very early age. 
I always felt like a loser at some level, a failure, a misfit, a nothing. And that hung on long into sobriety because I wasn't aware of it. Most of us are not aware of our own self-hate until someone else points it out. I had a lot of reason to be afraid. I was the ugliest baby you ever saw. <laughs> People say, how you know that? I said, my mama told me. My mama told me she'd never seen an ugly baby until I was born. She wouldn't take me out of the house the first six weeks. I was on the face of the earth. She didn't want anybody to see me. I told a psychiatrist that one time. He said, ooh. Oh, that must have been traumatic for you. <laughs> I said, no, sir, it wasn't traumatic. I've seen my baby pictures. Mama's right. I was ugly. <laughs> and as I grew, things didn't get much better. I'm one of those skinny little old boys, you know. My shoulder blades stuck out like handles on a tricycle. <laughs> and I tried to compensate by bringing my shoulders around and my chest would disappear. It was a no-win situation. <laughs> and Mama made me wear knickers. My little old legs this big and the knicker holes this big. And as I was always pulling up those knickers, I hated those knickers. And there's brown corduroy knickers, and I always swished when I walked. Somebody said to me not long ago, knickers are coming back. I said, not on my ass, they ain't. <laughs> and in addition to that, I had these freckles. Now, I love freckles on other people. I had freckles where people never reported having freckles, y'all. And I hated those freckles. I was skinny and I had freckles and I was ugly and I knew it. You know? And I always wanted to be a macho man. You know, a little boy, they even called me a little man when I was growing up. You know, a lot of us got that treatment. Look, you're a little man. You know? <laughs> and I wanted to be macho and big and tough and mean like my uncles. Like my uncle Cedric and my... My Uncle Glenn and my Uncle Lloyd and my Uncle Durwood. My Uncle Durwood, they called him Dud. <laughs> Dud was a motorcycle cop back in the days when they wore riding breeches and leather spats up to their knees and he had a harness across here with silver bullets stacked in it. Pearl Handle 38 sitting high on his hip. He smelled like gunpowder and shaving lotion and he squeaked when he walked. <laughs> now by God, that's macho. In addition to the skinniness and freckles, I had this great shock of snow-white hair. And you know what my macho uncles call me? Puddinghead. <laughs> Last time I checked the list of macho names, <laughs> Puddinghead was not on it. <laughs> and I got to tell you something that's important to me. The only time I wasn't afraid was when I was sitting behind Uncle Dud on his motorcycle with my arms around him. Riding that big police Harley down the road. I was just as safe and secure as a bug in a rug. Even then, I needed a higher power. My Uncle Dud was and is my hero. And we need heroes in this world, and I believe we need heroes in this program. I would not be here tonight were it not for my heroes in this program. And don't misunderstand me. I don't mean idols. I don't mean these poor folks, you know, you hear from the podium and you take them and sit them up on a pedestal where they don't belong and wait for them to do something wrong so you can destroy them. Because that's the reason idols are created. I'm talking about heroes. And the heroes in this program are the good old gals and guys that get out there and they do it and they fall down and they make mistakes and they screw up big time and they get up and do it again. And they keep on doing it and keep on doing it and keep on doing it. I can follow that kind of a person. Those are my heroes. 
I cannot match perfection. But I can sure identify with imperfection. And so can we all. And that's one of the biggest reasons we're sober. Because each of us can identify with imperfection and move on. I used to look back on my childhood and all I could see was the ugliness of it, you know. I was raised by a black belt Southern Baptist mother. She was some kin to Jim's, I think. She's a phenomenal woman, a brilliant woman. But a woman that didn't seem to really care about me. I never seemed to do anything good enough to please my mother. I'd come home with straight A's on my report card, and the unspoken comment was, why can't you do better than this? She treated me as if I was incapable of doing anything for myself. And for years, I hated her. And I don't mind saying that now, because the worm turned. My mother's dead now. But if I called her tonight and she were alive, and I said, Mother, I need you to come up here to Cincinnati to die for me, my mother would have been right here. And I'm one of those who thinks it's time we cut our parents some slack. This is not a program of blame. This is not a program of victimhood. This is a program of my being accountable for my actions and responsible for my reactions. And I can really get off and get lost in hate. I know I did. And blame, I did. I made a resentment list. How about you? Back when I was a victim. And then we find out, truly, Bob, there are no victims. Except little bitty children and those who are defenseless. And even they can recover if they practice the queen of all virtues, and that is forgiveness. There is no mental, emotional, or spiritual help without forgiveness, ever. You'll be stuck the rest of your life. And people say, oh, you've got to like them to forgive them. You've got to understand them to forgive them, you know. You've you got you to figure out why they did it, you know, and all this. No, you don't. It doesn't have anything to do with it. Forgiveness is an action that you take, and we've heard actions talked about here. I got a friend at home whose name is Tom. He came in AA with his wife, and right away his wife started running around with another man. That's resentment material, you know that? <laughs> Made Tom so furious he used to go to meetings with a thirty-eight pistol in his pocket and bullets in the other one, his britches hung to his knees. <laughs> Had another gun in the car going to kill that man. And he goes to his sponsor, you know how stupid these people are. Sponsor said, pray for the man. He said, I ain't praying for that son of a bitch. I'm going to kill him. And he owned him. He owned his mind. And he finally realized that one night, and he got down on his knees, and he didn't try to understand him or justify what he had done or anything else. And here was the prayer he prayed, and I quote it. Lord, if you have a mind to bless that son of a bitch, I won't object. Amen. <laughs> True story. No more gun. Seven years later, I saw him at a mutual friend's funeral, and they embraced one another program work big time but I look back on my life now when I was a kid and there's some good and the more I could see about a little bit of good you know I could see two goods and then three and then four and then five and, and my childhood's taking on a balance and I kind of like that because I can look back at it now and, and you know accept all of it as what it was good and bad there's a lot of good there I live in a little mill town down in North Carolina a little textile mill town everybody in that town on that side of the street where we lived was family to me we didn't have the same names but I spent the night at their house. I ate at their house. If I misbehaved, I was punished at their house. They would call it abuse nowadays. 
But what they told us was quite simple. Boy, you do that, I'll whoop your ass. And you did it, and they did. And, and there was no court of appeal. And you start hearing that mama talk. You all ever hear that mama talk? Mama would be switching my legs. Say, remember, son, this hurts me worse than it hurts you. Never did understand that, never will. Always want to say, Mama, give me the stick. <laughs> but I had some good friends on that block, and I remember these people as if they were here tonight, and in a real way they are, because they're a part of me, like all of you are going to be a part of me that I get to know here. Remember the lady next door, her name was Lena. She's the best cook on the block. She's the best eater, too. <laughs> Lena was fat, y'all. I used to love to hug Lena. Man, you go and hug Lena, you'd have a breast in both ears. <laughs> and, and, and she'd pat me on the head and say, I love you, Puddin'. I'd just go, mmm. <laughs> and, and there was nothing sexual about it, I swear, you know. I wish I could hug her tonight, man. I loved it, you know. And then old man Lucas, I'm not going to go into all that, but he'd come by my house with a wheelbarrow going down to slop the hog, Jim. Y'all ever slop any hogs up here? And, and he got to get in the wheelbarrow, and we'd ride down to the hog pen while he slopped the hogs. I'd go over to the creek and wade barefooted, you know, and drink some clean, cool water out of the creek and catch crawdads. God, that was fun, you know. Sneak home, take my shoes off on the way back home, walk down that sandy road, you know, and feeling good. Just being not going nowhere, no objectives, no goals, you know, just walking in the sand with my shoes off before May the 1st because Mama couldn't see me. And I'd go home, you know, and just have the best time you ever saw, laying flat on my back in the grass and looking up at the sky and saying, ain't that beautiful? I wonder who made it. And that's a nice cloud. I wonder where it came from. I wonder where it goes when it leaves. Good little boy child stuff. Used to go to a movie every Saturday. Cost me nine cents to go to a movie. Man that run the theater lived next door to me. Popcorn was a nickel a box. You ran out of popcorn, stick your box back out there. He'd fill it up for you. My heroes were the cowboys. See, a double feature western for nine cents, along with two serials like Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and, and good cartoons. I don't mean this monster mess you see on TV now. I'm talking about Bugs Bunny and Porky Pig and, and one of my role models, Wiley Coyote. <laughs> I, I'll tell you now, every time Wiley's rocket goes out, I say, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I love these cowboys. Some of y'all are too young to remember, and you watch TBS early some morning, 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, you might be privileged to see some of these cowboys. Hop along Cassidy and Rocky Lane and Sunset Carson. Wild Bill Elliott had a square jaw, wore a leather vest, had two silver six guns turned backwards. You draw on Wild Bill, he'd spin those guns around and shoot that gun right out of your hand, man. Cowboys was polite in those days. <laughs> Nowadays, you got to have guts all over the screen, you know. It's almost like Wild Bill would say, hold it out a little further. I don't want to hit you, man. And he'd spin them guns back in his holster. God, he was wonderful. And my favorite cowboy was a dude named Lash LaRue. And they called him Lash because he carried a bullwhip. You draw down on Lash, he whooped the gun out of your hand. Oh, I thought that was the most wonderful thing in the world, you know. And I was watching Lash one day, and, and he's done run all the bad guys out of town, standing up on the roof of the saloon looking macho, and he popped his whip and whistled, and his horse came running by. 
And he popped that whip again, and he leapt into the saddle and rode off in the sunset, popping that whip, and tears came to my eyes. Said, God, look at Lash. That is wonderful. I sat through that movie again and again, just see him do that. Well, you know you got to emulate your heroes. So I went home, got me a piece of rope, went up on the garage. Little boy next door, John Q., had a pony named Beauty. I said, John Q., go saddle up Beauty, and he did. I said, now walk her past the garage, and he did. And I popped my rope and whistled and leapt into the saddle. When I hit it, you could have heard me scream in Myrtle Beach. I, I don't know if that was a spiritual experience or not, but I have never forgotten it. And 30 minutes later, when I got my breath back, I started wondering about Lash LaRue. <laughs> and I still wonder about Lash LaRue. But these were my heroes. And I had the finest daddy that ever walked the face of the earth. He was the sweetest, kindest, gentlest, goodest, best man you ever saw in your life. And I adored him. And he's one of my heroes. I used to sit outside the kitchen window in Chinaberry tree. We call them chaney ball trees in North Carolina. And do some deep thinking. And I think I got a good mama and a good daddy. My sister's okay. and Got some good friends. Love going to the movies. I got a pretty good life here. But something's missing. I don't know what it is, you know. But there's an emptiness inside of me. It's like there's a big hole in the middle of me, like Johnny says, with the wind blowing through it. And it hurts. And I don't know where to find the answer to fill this hole, but if I ever find it, it's going to be the greatest thing in the world. And I wonder what it was, you know. I don't know if you all ever had those feelings. I was 15 years old. I was on a high school singing trip in Greensboro, North Carolina, and We'd go up there and practice all week, the best singers from around the state, and we'd put on a concert for the whole weekend, you know. And I loved to sing. And I was up there with these fellows who were older, more experienced than I was. They were 17 and 18 years old. They had really been around. And we're in a hotel room. I'll never forget this. And they called a cab driver, and they gave him $7 and a half. And he came back a while later, and he had a bottle of brown liquid in his hand, and the label on it said Cream of Kentucky. And I'll never forget that. And I said to my friend, Egghead Baker, Egghead, what do we do with this stuff? He says, you drink a glass of it as fast as you can, then you drink a glass of water, and then you do it again. You're going to feel good. And I walked in front of the bathroom mirror, and I watched myself take my first drink, and as God is my witness, I can picture it right now. It was absolutely fantastic. The hole closed. Everything was all right. The fear vanished. Whatever it was I was looking for, I have found it, and I'm never going to be without this stuff again. I blacked out the first night, but not before my friends had passed out, you know. And when they passed out, I called the cab driver and got me a pint of cream of Kentucky. I didn't know they made nothing else, and drank on into a blackout. And I was off and running. I was already into alcoholism, and I didn't even know it. And by the time I was 16 or 17 years old, I was getting locked up on a regular basis in the Wake County Jail. My father on the board of deacons for 55 years. My mother, hostess of the Tabernacle Baptist Church. Their son making the social pages. And if you think the guilt and the shame don't deepen behind that, you better think again. And I kept telling myself the alcoholic's lie. This time it'll be different. 
This time, if I just handle it right, I'm going to be able to drink like everybody else. And that was a lie, too, because I never wanted to drink like everybody else. How many times have you told yourself that lie? Wish I could drink like him or her. The hell you do. <laughs> I can't stand social drinkers. These are the ones who call us alcohol abusers. Don't you just love that? Every time I hear that term alcohol abuser, I can visualize a wino with a ball-peen hammer and a bottle of MD-2020 just beating hell out of it. <laughs> these social drinkers coin that phrase, alcohol abuser, and you watch them. <laughs> they go to these cocktail parties. You ever thought about that word, cocktail? <laughs> That's an interesting word. They go to these talk cocktail parties and they chit-chat. That means you talk at me, I don't care what you say, and I talk at you, you don't care what I'm saying. We're just putting in our time at this cocktail party. They take perfectly good liquor and start putting mess in it. They put Pepsi-Cola and Sprite and club soda and water and milk and tomato juice. <laughs> now, ain't enough, they start with the vegetables. They put celery and onions and carrots and, and olives and all this other kind of stuff in it, and then that's not enough, and they put fruit in there. And it's perfectly good liquor. And squirt whipped cream on top of it, stick that umbrella in it, Jim, with a straw through the top of it, and suck it. <laughs> now, I don't know, I'm an alcoholic. My way of thinking, when you take perfectly good booze and put all that shit in it, that is alcohol abuse. <laughs> and then they suck it, they suck it till it's half gone, and they think it's half full. I'm an alcoholic, I know it's half empty. And the host comes over. That's what they call the pusher at a cocktail party. <laughs> he says, your drink is a little low. May I freshen it? And I think, what does that mean? More whipped cream? <laughs> and these idiots would say, oh, no, I'm beginning to feel it. I wanted to kill them. You know, I never wanted to drink that way. I wanted to drink successfully, meaning I wanted to be on the ultimate high and stay there always the rest of my life. And I got news for you. There's only one ultimate high, and the name of it is sobriety. Think about it. I didn't know that. <laughs> By the time I was 23... Chasing the illusion, which is what I was doing. I'd had over a thousand sissies taken in my face alone as a result of drinking. Been in jails. Religious homes for alcoholics, those are fun. <laughs> <laughs> the treatment was preaching every Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday morning the surrounding churches would come in to look at us. <laughs> like goldfish in a damn bowl. <laughs> and we was always testifying. Have you ever heard a drunk testify? A bunch of drunk? If you've been to a discussion meeting, you have. <laughs> we had a quartet down there. <laughs> Called ourselves the Four Roses. Went around saying gospel music to raise money for this play. Oh, it was a trip. Got drunk on the way up the road from that place. And I was in jails and I was in psycho war. I excelled in the psycho ward. I excelled everything I ever did in my life. There's something to do. I'd get out there and do it better and quicker than anybody else had ever done it. No different than the psycho ward. There's a difference in me and them other guys. They didn't know where they were and what their problem was. I did. But I was with them, and I always wanted to be accepted. You know, when you hate your own guts, it's very important that other people accept you and like you, even if they're nuts. <laughs> so I started watching the schizophrenics. I'm a quick study, man. 
Didn't take me long. I could go catatonic with the best of them. <laughs> Say to the doctor, what you giving him? He told me, a trilophon. I said, give me some. And he gave me some. What are you giving them? Them that are walking up and down the hall 24 hours a day. Oh, they're on Thorazine. I said, give me some. And he gave me some, and I learned the Thorazine shuffle. I shuffle up down the hall with all them schizos. Played ping pong with a schizophrenic Cherokee Indian all day long. Man never changed expression, just hit that damn ping pong ball, you know? So, and, and the doctor says, why do you stay with him? He could be dangerous. Why, well, I stayed with him. I'm an alcoholic. i got to be the best. I couldn't beat him at ping pong. The doctor said to me one day, says, says, you got problems. <laughs> said, one of them's alcoholism. I can't help you with that. But I know some people that might be able to. And they meet down over the fire station downtown. And I don't know what to do down there, but they seem to get well. Why don't you take a trip and go down there? So, okay, give me a pass. He gave me a pass. I ain't going to no AA meeting. I went to the nearest bar. That's what alcoholics do. And I came back to the psycho war drunk. And I jerked that Cherokee out of bed and I beat the shit out of him. <laughs> And they threw me out of the psycho ward. <laughs> now, when you get thrown out of a psychiatric ward, you have arrived as an alcoholic. <laughs> At least you know one thing, your problem ain't the same as theirs. I knew I didn't have schizophrenia when I got thrown out. I had alcoholism. <laughs> so I came to you out of the graciousness of my heart. little pimply-faced perfectionist bastard and so religious I was dangerous. <laughs> always mastered everything, always number one at everything I ever did. Wanted to be that in AA too. Came to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was about 23. The guy up front with a blue book in front of him. He was in control. I've always liked that too. <laughs> Y'all don't like control, do you? <laughs> Hell, if I pull the bus of life in here tonight, everybody go for the steering wheel. <laughs> Alan Lines would be first. Let me do it. Let me do it. <laughs> there was a plaque had 12 steps on it. The plaque had 12 traditions on it. I said, all you got to do is memorize. And I got a partial photographic memory. Memorize what's on those plaques. Memorize what's in that book. They'll put you up front and they'll listen to you. You ought to be present. Alcoholics Anonymous, very short. <laughs> That's the intellectual. I want you to hear this. Okay? I memorize it. I can quote great portions of the book to you tonight. Bobby misquoted some of it this morning. <laughs> but I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to do that anymore. Do you realize the freedom in that? But that's all I had. No danger in me memorizing much of anything anymore. I haven't got but two neurons left. Alcohol burn all my mouth. Every once in a while they meet and I have a brain fart. And that's a big thought for me. <laughs> but I'm smart, man. Memorize it. Sure enough, they put me up front. And they listened to me. I delivered some of the windiest dissertations. You have ever heard in your life. <laughs> Only thing I couldn't do was stay sober. For the next seven years, the longest I ever stayed dry, hear me, knowing all this, was 89 days. Seven years, 89 days. I know it's 89 days because in North Carolina we give a red poker chip. 
for 30, 90 days. so bad I've been up to the chip box after the meeting and stolen one. <laughs> you see, I was tired of being nothing. I want to be somebody. That red chip made me somebody. So I took one of them and pasted it on the 90th day of a calendar. And I was working the steps as I saw fit. <laughs> the one that really intrigued me was the prayer and meditation. I'm a Baptist. I know how to pray. You know, meditation is what really got me. I like that. I found out the greatest meditators in the world were these guys shaved all the hair off their head and wore these orange bathrobes and crossed their legs real funny and chanted, Om. And I said, that's it. But I wasn't interested in the discipline, and that is a good discipline, and I'm not knocking that discipline. I never was interested in the process. I was always interested in results. And what these guys could do was lay on beds of nails and walk across coals of fire and be locked up in a coffin, you know, for 48 hours and still live and breathe. I thought, by God, when I can do that, they'll notice me. <laughs> Couldn't find an orange bathrobe nowhere. So I wore my old dirty terry cloth blue drinking liquor bathrobe with the cigarette burns in it. <laughs> I'm too vain to shave the hair off my head. I'd broken my legs so many times driving into things you're not supposed to drive into in an automobile that I could get into lotus position, but I could not get out of it. <laughs> so I'd get my wife to help me. She'd sit me down and hurt. It hurt having your legs all knotted up like that, but you got to do it perfect if you're an alcoholic. And I'd sit there waiting for my spiritual awakening to happen, just chanting my ass off, Keith. Um. Now, I know much about God. Don't have to. What's important is that he know me. I believe that God's meant to be experienced more than he's meant to be talked about. And he's got a sense of humor. I know that. I can see him up there now looking down at me and saying to Peter, well, there he is again. Peter says, who? God said, Puddinhead. <laughs> Got on that dirty bathrobe again. I can smell it clear up here. Wish he'd get rid of that thing. His legs are hurting bad, Peter. And tell me, what does ohm mean anyway? And what frightens me today is I was serious about this. I was tailor-making my own spiritual experience. Can you hear the arrogance in that? Yeah, drunk telling God, do it my way. I'm sitting here chanting, by God, move on it now. I'm serious about this. That tells you the extent of my insanity, Keith. And God said, what Puddin wants is a lightning bolt. He done read about Paul getting knocked off a jackass, you know, and Moses and a bush lit up for him, and he wants me to do that for him. And I got plenty of lightning bolts, and I'd send old Puddin one of them, but he wouldn't like the color.
I met some of the hatefulest people in Alcoholics Anonymous I ever met in my life. They were ugly, stupid, profane, and they talked in circles, and they called them old timers. I ain't got time to go into all of them that really tried on me. There's a bunch of them that tried on me, you know. One of them was a guy named Bill C., and I called him Grumpy. I hated his guts. That man would wait for me. He denied it, but he'd wait for me to come to that meeting. I was out studying to be a Baptist preacher. I was out there, pre-ministerial student, making straight A's in philosophy and metaphysics and Hebrew and Greek, and couldn't find my ass with both hands. And he'd wait for me at that meeting, and I'd come in the door, and he'd point his finger at me and say, How you doing, boy? Oh, God, I hated that. And I'd say, I'm fine. And he'd go to cussing. Back me in the corner with that finger and tell me how I was. The man could see my guts. That scared me. He talked in circles. Boy, you can't think your way into good living. You got to live your way into good thinking. And I'd think to myself, I didn't say it because I was scared of him. I'd think, you stupid old bastard, shut up. I'm smarter than you are. I wanted to hit him. And how come you always running around looking for God, boy? God ain't lost. I knew right away I had to get him on my side. So, so I went out to save a soul. I called it 12-step call, wasn't I? went out to save a soul. I was going to be responsible for the results so I could show it to somebody. I found this old boy in a log cabin, been laid up there drunk for two months. No indoor plumbing. He was turning blue in that place. You wouldn't believe the filth in there. I said, this is a good candidate. I got him to the hospital and got a lady down the street, and we shoveled that place out, raked it out, washed it out, swept it out, got it all clean, got him back from the hospital. He was going to live. The place was immaculate, and I called Grumpy. I wanted him to come see what I had done. Then he would like me. And then going through all that crap in that house, I found a gallon of wine. And when Grumpy got there, me and that old boy was both drunk. (laughs) And Grumpy wasn't too impressed with the whole situation, right? I used to call Grumpy for help when it's too late. Y'all ever call when it's too late? All the booze is gone, you know, and the test pattern's on TV. And you say, well, shit, I need some help. <laughs> I called him one morning in the wee hours of the morning before I could say a word. He said, boy, don't you ever call me again, drunk. I said, matter of fact, don't you ever call me. If you want to get sober, you know where we meet. And don't call me to come get you. You can walk. And frankly, I don't care if you ever get sober. Oh, what I said about him, I can't say. And I bless him tonight. And he's one of my heroes. Because he knocked the skids out from under me. He said, I don't give a damn if you ever get... How uncaring can you be? He's one of my major heroes, you know. And he never changed. I've got to tell you this. Last time I saw him, he was on his deathbed dying with bone cancer in New Hanover Hospital in Wilmington, North Carolina. And I'd come to love that man over the years. I'd been sober 16 years, and I walked into his hospital room, and up came the finger. And he said, boy, you'll never make it.
depth of insanity is great. I drank on. I knew there was an answer, so I never comfortably drank again. I knew that Alcoholics Anonymous was the path. And what I was missing was some other elements that are necessary, I believe, if I was going to stay sober. First, desperation. And then I needed a path, and then I needed a group, and then I needed a guide, and then I needed a God, but I didn't know any of this. And I drank on. I did things like drive under a tractor trailer in an alcoholic blackout. It took them four and a half hours to cut me out of the car in Wheeling, West Virginia. I was in traction for three and a half months. Became addicted to some other medications. Lost down to 140 pounds. People came in to see me every day, Bob. People took good care of me. A Catholic priest came in every day to see me. I'm not Catholic. And I left that place and I was into those drugs. I couldn't walk. I was on crutches. I didn't think my left leg would ever straighten out again. I didn't thank anybody. And for the next five months, I sat around and took some drugs that the doctor gave to me. As a new painkiller came out, he said, it's totally non-addictive. Its name is Percodan. <laughs> and I put it in my body, and my body said, get some more of that shit and get it now. Five months later, when I could walk with crutches, I got in my Volkswagen, I drove to the nearest bar, and I got drunk. That's the depth of alcoholic insanity. Why not? I'm better. One of my greatest enemies was when things would get good for me. Because that right side, that monkey side of my head would start talking to me and say, Oh boy, you're really something. You know? And it almost killed me. This program, as I understand it, is in the business of quieting down that monkey side of my head through a process which used to be called ego deflation at depth, knocking the monkey out. I was out of work for a year and a half. Worst time I ever had in my life, drinking. I, I, I didn't know how much I liked work until I was out for a year and a half. And I got a job as a teacher at a community college down in Charlotte. And I was about to lose that job because of my drinking. And on July 20th, or thereabouts, 1965, I came to. And I knew something. And I didn't know it in my head. I knew it in that place where you really know things. It's not a knowledge of the mind. It's not a mental knowledge. It's a certainty. And the certainty was this. You can't drink. I knew it. And you can't quit. And for the first time, I think I realized that. And you're going to die. By this time, I'm on five years probation. I'm never supposed to drive a car again in the state of North Carolina. And I walked back to Alcoholics Anonymous. Had it been left up to my head, I'd have never come back to you. My feet brought me here. And I bless my feet, which is the residence of faith. James Taylor's got a song. The lines say, I guess my feet know where they want me to go. Mine did. Thank God for my feet. And I made a profit out of Grumpy. And I went late and I left early. And I felt like I was the ugliest, sorriest human being that ever walked the face of the earth. And these people would say things to me like, we're glad you're here. You know, we need you. 
and the one that shaked me up, we love you. And I think to myself, my God, if you knew me, you wouldn't say any of these things. And they kept on saying them. <clears throat> then they found out I was walking. In the first two years I was sober, I didn't have the first driver's license. I never walked again. I went to a meeting every night. It's what we call group sponsorship. I got five and six and eight phone calls a day from the guys in the group. They didn't say call me. They call, you know, they didn't give me the number and say call me. They called. And I'd found a group. I didn't know it yet, but I'd found a group. And I kept going. And Grumpy later told me that's the only thing you ever did, right? You just kept coming back, you know. And I got to looking around that group and I saw this man there and, and I liked the way he moved. And I liked the way he talked. And it didn't hurt that he wore expensive suits and smoked big cigars and drove a Cadillac either. That didn't hurt a damn bit. <laughs> Got to be honest about this deal. But what struck me were his eyes. If his eyes were indeed the windows of his soul, he had one of the most beautiful souls I've ever seen in my life. I couldn't even look him in the eyes. It scared me. They were like, you know, coming at you. You know what I mean? I, and, I, and I went up to him one night and I said, I'm Tom, I don't want to die. Will you be my sponsor? And he turned on me and he said, boy, I have heard about you. They tell me you're not just an alcoholic. They tell me you're crazy. But I'll help you on one condition. I said, what's that? He said, we'll do it my way. And I don't know, but one way, and it's in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. You want to do that? I said, yes, sir. You ever notice how wise and erudite your sponsor seems until you ask them to be your sponsor? And then they almost immediately go stupid on you? Well, Harry did that. He went stupid on me right away, you know. He said, first thing I want you to do is go to meetings early, and I want you to shake everybody's hand and ask them how they're doing. I said, I don't want to go to meetings early. I don't want to shake their hand. I don't care how they're doing. I just don't want to die, and why do I have to do that? And he said, boy, you don't ask me why. You do what I tell you to do. Now, a lot of people come out of centers now, you know, where they've had counselors. And they confuse a sponsor and a counselor, you know. I have a master's degree in counseling. I hope you're impressed by that. I'm not. <laughs> and if I told you to do that, my next question would be, how does that make you feel? My sponsor didn't give a shit how it made me feel. <laughs> I mean, you know, he didn't seem to. He cared a great deal about my feelings, you know. But he knew that action was the important thing. Whether it feels good or not is not the deal, Tom. You just do it. You do it. You do it. You do it when you feel good. You do it when you feel bad. He said, there's two times to go to meetings. I said, when's that? He said, when you want to and when you don't want to. That's the kind of sponsor I have. And he said, if you go through the motions, the emotions will take care of themselves. Effort, result. Effort, result, effort, result. Sometimes I do things just to prove him wrong. You want to know what? He was never wrong. And I went to meetings, you know, and I looked at the floor. And I shook hands and mumbled. Mm. I didn't miss anybody because I knew he was watching me. And if I missed somebody, he'd embarrass me. And after a few weeks, I saw some ankles. And then I saw some shins and some knees, and I saw some thighs. And I saw some of the prettiest hips I'd seen in a long time. <laughs> and finally, I was looking them in the eye, and I was glad to see them. And there was a connection.
because they were glad to see me too, and I knew it, and I had found my God. That's something showing through there. And things started changing. And they started changing radically because I was being transformed without my knowledge. I was just doing what I was told. One day I'm sitting up at the college and all of a sudden it just hit me, Keith. Yeah, more than a drink in over three months. I sat there and bawled like a baby. I did more crying in that first six months I'd sober than I'd done in the last 30 years. <laughs> they asked me one night to get up and read, you know, and I stood up there and bawled. My sponsor came up and said, come on, son, sit down. You'll get ready, you know. Put me up there again. I bawled again. I couldn't do anything but bawl. Take me on 12-step calls, you know, and I went on the first one, and this guy's sitting there shaking. I said, hey, what do I do and what do I say? He said, you don't know nothing. You don't say nothing. Sit your ass down and shut up. <laughs> and I was changing. And I was going through the steps, and I'm saying, I'm changing, but I don't know how. And other people were saying, you're changing before I knew I was changing. I called Grumpy when I was sober six months. I told him I was sober six months. Did you a damn lie. Ain't no way that boy be sober six months, you know. He came down to see me get that old yellow plastic chip. I never will forget that. You know. And Harry told me later he took bets on me. They made bets on me. <laughs> Said he'd never make it a year. I always wondered why he took me to the state convention when I was a year sober to collect his damn bets. <laughs> That's the truth, Bob. He didn't have the guts to tell me that till I was sober five years. I mean, you're talking about a loser here. You're talking about a real loser, an intellectual with religious overtones. A real low-bottom drunk. Oh, Lord, it was good, you know. And I'm sitting in a little chapel, you know, down St. Simon's Island. I hadn't thought about this in a long time. And I'm sitting there, and I was looking up the stained glass window, just getting a little quiet time. I had just finished the seventh step. You know, ironically, coincidentally, and I look up at the stained glass window, and, and the carpenter's up there, but there's no cross. And the thought comes in my mind, where's the cross? And the thought comes right behind it. It's gone, so is yours. And I bawl like a baby. And I got out there making amends, and I didn't have a driver's license, so I'd save my money. I'd catch a Greyhound bus and go make amends. It was astounding to me. The people's response was astounding to me. I thought since I hated me, everybody else did too. And these people almost universally would say to me, Tom, we've always loved you. We just wondered when you were going to get well. I said, hell, I did too. <laughs> and I had one I couldn't make. I'm on five years probation, you know, and, and that wreck I'd had in West Virginia. I owed some amends to those people, and they were on my list. I needed to thank them, if nothing else, for all the goodness they had shown me. And I couldn't go until I got sued. Never touched a cab on that truck. Went under the trailer. But that truck driver found out who I worked for, which is one of the largest publishing companies in the United States, you know, and how much they insured me for, and he got mental anguish and lower back pain right quick. <laughs> and I got subpoenaed to West Virginia. And I went to my probation officer. I said, I got to go. He said, man, I ain't got time to go through the paperwork, but just go on up there. I didn't even have a coat to wear. A friend at the college loaned me a coat to go to West Virginia. And I go up and I go in the lawyer's office, you know, and and, and I sit down, and he's the judge in that area who could put me in jail then if I told him the truth, and I knew that. And he started to tell me what he wanted me to say in court, and I told him what I was going to say in court. I said, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't even remember that wreck. I was in an alcoholic blackout, and his, his, his countenance fell. <laughs> he spent three hours trying to convince me I'd had a concussion, so he didn't understand blackouts. 
And he said, if I take you to court, you're going to tell the truth, aren't you? I said, yes, sir. Got to. He said, let me call the insurance company. I heard him talking on the phone. He turned back around. He grinned, and he said, they want to know how fast I can get your ass out of town. And they couldn't, Keith. It was over Thanksgiving. Isn't that ironic? And they couldn't get me a flight back. The company paid my way up there, and I had to pay a cent. And I called this Baptist preacher up there who had took in my wife and daughter while I was in the hospital. And I called him, and it was on a Thursday. Long silence at the end of the phone. He said, you know who we were praying for at prayer meeting last night? And I said, no, sir. He said, you. And I told him what I was going to do, and I thought he was going to wet his pants. He said, I'll be right over there. And he drove over there and picked me up, and I went around to everybody, the policeman, the doctor. You know, and when he charged me, I told the policeman, you knew I was drunk. He said, because you were a dead man. And the doctor, why didn't you put it on my medical report? Because you were a dead man. It took me nine and a half hours to sew you back together. I never thought you'd make it. I went to everybody. We used to sing a song in the Baptist church, God made a way for me. And I found out when I'm ready to take that action, when I'm ready to take that action, Bob, the way will be laid out for me. I could never have figured that out. I was walking on air when I got back from West Virginia. That's when a certainty about this higher power that I don't really understand that well started coming to me, man. It was chill bump time. And I still couldn't say anything without bawling. I couldn't remember anything at meetings. <clears throat> Somebody would say something good and I wanted to remember it, and it was gone. <laughs> So my sponsor says, get you a little notebook and a pencil and take it to meetings. I thought, it's a hell of a thing for an intellectual to be doing. <laughs> but I took my little black book to meetings, and the first talks that I made in Alcoholics Anonymous, so help me God, I opened that black notebook, I read what was in it, and I sat down. <laughs> Provided my sponsor didn't drop his cigar first, and that meant sit down. <laughs> I had a beautiful young pigeon now. He's sober three years, 21 years old. Call him Squidge. God, he's beautiful. He says, what's the Squidge? I says, just you. <laughs> and he's into things, man. He's looking at nature. And he's told me one night, keep true story, crickets are spiritual, man. <laughs> he said, man, crickets kick ass. And he's, he's so alive. And he comes to me, what can I do next? What can I do next? How many pigeons do you ever have like that? Let's read that part of the book again. Let's do this. Let's do that. You know? And a beautiful young kid. You know? And I love him. I love him a lot. I love those guys in that group. I love what they do to me when I get back from a thing like this. I love it. I'll go in my home group Monday night. And they'll say, there's what's his name. <laughs> Who you been off to lying to this time, puddinghead? I mean, these kids ain't been sober a year, two, three years. Sit your ass down and learn something, boy. Don't say nothing. And Squidge, the night he talked, he usually wears his Grateful Dead t-shirt, you know, and his hat and all that stuff. And he's got long blonde hair. He's a beautiful kid. I said, you got to dress up when you talk. And he showed up in sartorial splendor. That hair was slicked back, Jimmy, and he had it tied back behind his head, had on suspenders and a pinstripe suit. He was cool. And I told him a story about how my sponsor used to drop his cigar when it's time for me to shut up. And before he got up there to talk, he said, Here, Tom, I want you to have this cigar. If I go too long, just drop it on me. That's good stuff. I've changed. More correctly, God has changed me through the work. 
The mechanism of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is the finest, most effective, life-changing program face on the face of the earth if you will give yourself to that program. Not question it, not understand it, not decipher it, not analyze it, just do it. Like Tom P. used to say, read the directions on the idiot card and carry them out. And I've done that to the best of my ability, you know. And things have changed. They've changed radically. You know, one thing that bugged me, and Bob kind of touched on it this morning. The last three or four years of my life have been the worst, toughest years of my entire sobriety. Okay? I had four surgeries. I had cancer, emphysema, deep venous thrombophlebitis. almost went bankrupt. The woman that I love more than anything in the world walked out on me. My mother got Alzheimer's. My sponsor got Alzheimer's. I'm reeling. And when an old-timer gets to reeling, sometimes it scares people and they back off from him. Please don't leave us out. I needed hugging and caring and nurturing. I didn't need you to solve my problem. I just need you to tell me it's going to be okay. Please don't leave me alone when I get like that. And then my mom died. And that woman I love killed herself in a head-on collision. And I didn't once think about drinking. Not once. Okay? And I had me a new sponsor because Harry had Alzheimer's. And this sponsor's down to earth is spit. <laughs> and he said, Tom, you're hurting. I don't have the answer to your problem. I don't have a solution for you. But you can talk to me all you want to. Let me hear it. And I said, you're going to get tired of listening to me. He said, I'll tell you if I get tired of listening to you. You just talk because you're hurting. And I talked. And he said, I don't have any answers for you, but we can go to a meeting tonight. You know? And, and they need somebody to talk out there Thursday night. Why don't you go out there and talk for them? And a couple of guys in the group really looking for a sponsor. Why don't you sponsor? I don't want to sponsor anybody. I want to crawl up under the covers and die. He said, you need to get out of self. I thought, oh shit, here's another one. I'll tell you something. It's working. It's working. But please, let the old timers be human. Never make an idol out of an old timer. Never. Don't, just don't do it, you know. God, I've been privileged to touch and be touched by some of the people I consider the greatest human beings who ever walked the face of this earth. I was touched by Bob W. down in Texas. Bob was a powerful man. Bob was a straight man. He always told me the truth, just like Grumpy. That's the one thread that runs through all of them. They're not afraid to tell you the truth. We have a saying in my home group, if your friendship is more important to me than your sobriety, I cannot be your sponsor. I remember doing a, a four-step one time, Jimmy. It was perfect. I did it for Bob White because I was going to do the fifth with him. And I did it perfectly. I mean, right by the book, it was a gorgeous piece of work. <laughs> and I sat down with Bob, and I did this fifth step in all sincerity. And he just sat there. And when I got through, he said, he always called me sugar, you know. <laughs> and when I got through, he looked at me and said, are you through? I said, yeah. He said, sugar for a genius. You're the stupidest son of a bitch I ever met in my life. <laughs> Nothing has changed. And he was right. Nothing has changed, you know. taught me some great things. He says, you know what the greatest thing in the world is? And I said, no. He said, when somebody tells you they love you, 
And you can say to them, yeah, I know you do. And I love you too. For a self-hater, that's something. For a self-saboteur, that's something. Because you see, I've always been that. If I did a job and you complimented me, I'd make excuses for not doing it better. If you told me you loved me, I'd give you five to ten reasons why you shouldn't. And I wasn't even aware of it. My character was just enmeshed in self-hate. And we've got a step in the program that says watch for that kind of stuff. And when it arises. When it arises. Not tonight. Not tomorrow. When it arises. Ask God to remove it. Do with it. You people out there who have troubles with your feelings about yourself, you know. Watch yourself. Uncritically observe yourself. And when you're off course, correct it. I have to work my tail off at that. If there's a king of my character defects... It is my own loathing of me. Now, I'm an alcoholic, but I've been transformed. Fundamentally, profoundly, deeply transformed. It blows my mind sometimes that a program so simple put together by a bunch of hopeless people could help one like me when I, too, became hopeless. I'm not even the same person. I went off to my 25th high school reunion. You know? And I went down there, and the woman at the door didn't know who I was. I used to date her, man. <laughs> and she put on a lot of weight, so I didn't give a damn if she remembered me or not. <laughs> and I go in, and I'm the class drunk and screw up. I had to get a weapon to graduate from high school. Principal hated me, and I hated him in return. Only one I hated worse was the secretary, the old bitch. <laughs> And that night at the banquet for my reunion, who they asked to return thanks? The drunken screw-up. Person after person. You really, Tom? <laughs> Next day, we get a dedication ceremony at the high school, you know, and a monument we were given to the high school, you know, and, and they asked me to do the benediction. The drunk screw-up. And here came that principal. I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> Tommy, he says, have you become a minister? I said, no, sir, I'm a drunk. He said, well, something's happened to you. I said, yes, sir, it certainly has. Then his secretary came. She put lipstick all over me. God, she said, I thought you'd have been dead a long time ago. I have never met a boy as angry as you were at himself. Visibly changed. I'm a drunk, man. I've had two boys named after me. One, one of them's working at the Einstein Institute. He speaks a language I do not understand. He's a biophysicist, Jim. I don't even understand that stuff. You know? I'm a godfather for two of the most beautiful little girls you ever saw. How's that for a drunk? That father I love so much? My hero? Number one hero. When I was 18 years old, the judge gave me an option. <laughs> go to jail or go to service. It was incredible how quickly I got patriotic. <laughs> and my father took me down to the bus to go to the United States Air Force, and while he was telling me how much he loved me, he had his hand planted firmly on my butt, pushing me on that bus. <laughs> he wanted me out of his life, and he wanted me out now. I was driving him and Mama crazy. They didn't know what to do. <laughs> we got close after I got sober. And I was with him when he died. And it was awful. He had lung cancer. 
was a long, long period of death. And I got the privilege of being with him. And it hurt, but it was joyful. And I found out just how much strength this man had. And the morning before he died, he rolls over. He says, son, am I going to die? And I said, do you really want to know? And he said, yes. I said, yes, sir, the doctor says you are. And he said, well, when? I said, real soon. And I asked him then, I'll never forget this, does that frighten you? He said, yeah. He said, but I learned a long time ago, when you're afraid, you give the fear to God and go about your business. He'd been reading that other non-confidence-proof book. <laughs> and then he looked at me and he said, the single most important thing that's ever been said to me in my entire life. He said, Tommy, I love you. You're one of the finest men I've ever known in my life. And he died the next day. The fantastic program. It changes us. The losers of life. The self-haters of life. The selfishness is transformed. We get out there and give things. That's incredible. For me to give time or anything else to anybody else, that's incredible. It was always, gimme, gimme, gimme. It's mine anyway. <laughs> this is my world. You're just actors in my personal drama. <laughs> and damn it, do what I tell you to do or I'll get drunk at you. <laughs> I can actually give without telling anyone I have given. It's hard. Oh, Grumpy told me to do that one time. Do something nice for somebody and don't tell anybody about it. I went to the graveyard and paid for dead people. That's how sick I was. I reason hell, they can't thank me. They don't even know I'm here. And that mama who conceived me as a Southern Baptist preacher, who I never did anything good enough for, went to me one day to a, a place where I was doing a, a pitch, you know, teaching some alcoholics a few things or trying to. And she sat in there and she just swelled up all over. And I got a letter from her the next week and she'd never, ever said this. I'd been sober for years. And what she said is Baptist language. She said, son, that was a lovely sermon you gave. <laughs> and I'm proud to be your mother. My God, I bawled like a baby. <laughs> and the funniest thing was, the Baptist preacher and I got to be good friends. He'd go out of town, I'd fill the pulpit. I'd talk AA, then no difference. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and Mike got a call somewhere else. That means somebody else offered him more money. That's what it means in the preacher business. And, and he was going. And the deacon seriously said, why don't you move down to the preacher's house and take over this church? And I just busted out laughing. I said, I'd drive you all crazy in a week. But thank you anyway. And I'll fill in until you find somebody. They said, okay. Tried to give me some money. I wouldn't take any money. I said, give it to somebody that needs it. I don't need it. Went home, got on the phone. Couldn't resist. Called mama. The mama and the deacons have asked me to take over this church. And there was a silence, and she said, No, son, that's not your mission. And it's not. My mission is clearly stated in the 12th step of this program. I am to try to carry this message to other people like me. And I am to try to practice these principles in all my affairs. That is my mission. And I'm given all the tools in the world to do it. That's a beautiful thing. Even with all the pain, my innards know that everything's going to be okay again. Sometimes I wish I could shut them off, Bob. 
Say, shut up, it ain't okay. And it keeps on. Gonna be okay, gonna be okay, gonna be okay. My son's in the program now. He doesn't mind if I break his anonymity. He introduced me to speak not long ago as his hero. It's good stuff. I don't know if I've helped anybody. I hope to God I have. This is a job. It's an important one, too. It's not a performance. It never was meant to be. I'd like to close with a song. A friend in Alabama gave me a tape one time and said, this song reminds me of you and the singer reminds me of you. And it's a dialogue. And I'd like to make it a dialogue between my two daughters, Crystal and Francis, and my son, Jason, and my mother and me. And I'll close with this. My daughter, Christy, says, Daddy, why aren't you famous? And I said, Christy, I think I am. Because all the people you see here tonight came out here to give me a hand. But their applause isn't what really matters. It's what I can feel from their hearts. And if tonight I made dreamers of some who have lost them, I made friends with a few who were scared, or if there's one new believer who came here a critic, and I told him that somebody cared. And Christy, I always feel famous, though I'm not seen on TV. I get all the attention my ego can handle doing this live and for free. You see, I do it live and for free. My daughter Frances says, but Daddy, why are you lonely? And I said, Francis, I guess I am, because there are a few people that I miss tonight who aren't here to give me a hand. But you know, in some ways, they're closer than the people out on my front row. If I'm quiet, I can hear Grumpy's heart beating rhythm see Bob White driving his car. And there are preachers and poets that I never met, like Bill Wilson, who hasn't gone far. So I'm alone, but I'm not really lonely. i just got a group you can't see. They give me all the companionship my faith can handle doing this talking with me. You see, they do this talking with me. And Jason says, but Daddy, I think you're crazy. <laughs> I said, Jason, that's what keeps me sane. I was born with a strange sense of humor to go with a strong sense of pain. And I found that there's nothing so serious that it can't hold its own in a joke. So I may smile at stories about people suffering and laugh about losing my hat. Make people think I give talks without answers because I tease them and hide where they're at. But I also like things that are simple. And a smile is the last thing you'll see on the face of this crazy old outlaw. Laughing out loud because I'm me. I laugh like this because I'm free. And Mama says, but Tommy, do you love Jesus? And I said, Mother, doesn't it show? She said, I've been listening to you for an hour, and frankly, I've got to say no. <laughs> because if you did, you'd be famous. Big concerts and Christian TV. You'd be so well-known that you'd never get lonely, you'd never be crazy or weird, but you've got to give up making talks without answers, and you ought to shave off that old beard. I said, well, I love you too, Mother. But you sure found it different than me. Because you see, I do my best, and I do it like Jesus, because he did it live and for free. Tom, on behalf